Good job, Taylor. I'm sure your mom down there in Wichita is watching this morning, along with your brother and his wife, and to say we love you guys, and he did a good job this morning, and we appreciate your whole family. Love you very much. All right, kids, off to Bible Explorers. Go to explore the Bibles. Here we go. Kid been out the door. He's not even going to Bible Explorers. Last week, we were in John chapter 9, verses 8 through 30. And we saw one of the simplest and yet great stories in the Bible that will really illustrate through the story of this blind man. This man who was blind, born blind, his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ and what a real biblical witness should be. That's what we learned out of last week. This story is an incredible story. And as I told you last week, 41 verses dedicated to this event that really not only shows us what the Lord is doing for Israel and how he represents the nation of Israel in their blindness, but what a great picture it is of what a real biblical witness should be, showing us that a real salvation experience, uh, it'll be a life-changing event. It'll be a change in our direction in life that will be the evidence of a true conversion experience. And that's so missing today. The change of the direction of our lives, that's really repentance. For years and years and years, and even today, the word repentance, as I've said before many times, is greatly misunderstood. It has nothing to do with salvation but it has to do with a turn of direction. The Bible says back in Genesis 6 that it repented God that he made man. It doesn't mean that, you know, he got saved over the fact that he made. No, no. It means it turned to go another direction. And when God repented that he made man, then he turned in the direction for the flood. And repentance, the word itself when we trust the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, there has to be a change in the direction of our life. You know, I thought back as I was putting this together this week, you know, I thought of my own life, you know, and how that uh, the Lord really worked in my, in my world. You know, out of, you know, I was out of church. You know, we quit going to church probably when I was maybe 8 or 9 or 10. And I hadn't went to church then for years and years and years. I went into the army when I was 18. And then when I got out of the army, you know, God uh, began to work in my life. And God actually used the death of two men to really uh, get my attention and to help me. One of them was my father. Uh, he died of lung cancer when I was just a, a 18 or 19-year-old kid. And, uh, you know, that really... The real Lord really used that in my life. My dad was saved. My mom was saved. Sharon, my sister, saved. John saved. My brother-in-law, you know. And it's a thing where, but that really, that really began to where God began to work with me, and it really began to deal in my life of where I was going. And then, you know, the Lord always does this. Then the second event that happened, I, I just gotten back from the army. And I, my mom wanted to go to church that Sunday, so I, we went to church together. It was a work for her. She wanted to get back to, the, to going to church, and I needed to. So I went with her, and that morning, you know, she went to the main service, and I went to uh, Mel Sabaka, my father in the Lord. I went to his singles class that he had because that's the age group I was in. 
And I, I sat in the back because, you know, I really wasn't where I needed to be yet. I was doing this for my mom, and the Lord had been working on me, but I'm still, you know, I'm still kind of out there. I sat in the back. That morning, Mel Sabaka didn't preach. A guy preached by the name of Tommy Thomas. Tommy Thomas was the director of the Brown Street Mission. He was an old Philadelphian preacher with the guys that grew up in Canton, Ohio during the gangster years, Phil Ward, uh, those guys, you know, that uh, were just, had gotten saved, but, and they really turned their life over to the Lord. And he was preaching that morning, and he was preaching, and he started out his sermon by saying, I want to preach to you today a message on the second coming of Christ. And he said, and I have one question for you today. And he says, that question is, are you ready? And when he said that, he kind of slumped over and he grabbed his chest. And he started going down and yet he said one more time, are you ready? And then as he got on one knee and he hit the ground and he died of a heart attack in the pulpit. He pointed his finger and with the last breath out of his mouth. As loud as he could say it, he screamed, Are you ready? And he went home to be with the Lord. Now, you can imagine how that would tear up a service. Mel Sabaka come up, and he never missed an opportunity, brother, and he preached on it. But I, I was sitting in the back, and all I, and I'm telling you this, all I can tell you is, that, that last time when he pointed that finger and he asked the question at the top of his lungs with the last breath in his body, are you ready? He was pointing to me. And I knew I wasn't ready. I knew that there was things in my life that, that uh, shouldn't have been. And uh, it, 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 it was the beginning over the next couple of weeks that God really began to work on me and then I went forward three or four weeks later on a Sunday night and I just gave it all up and gave it to the Lord. Now, at that point in time, I worked for a place called the Hoover Company. We made vacuum cleaners, washing machines, and... uh, I had gotten a job there right after I got out of school and went in the Army and then came back to that job. And I was working there now that I was out of the service. And that weekend, when I went to be down front and gave everything to the Lord, Friday when I left work, I was just like everybody else. I was just like all the other guys. Uh, You wouldn't have seen any difference in me than the guys that were just unsaved, lost, and just in the world. But that Sunday night, after the events that took place in my life, was my my eye-opening experience where God healed my blindness. God had been working on me. And so Friday, I was in darkness. Sunday night, I went forward got it right with the Lord, and Monday morning, I was in the light. I showed up at work that Monday morning. I'll never forget, after I did all my right with the Lord and everything, I ran to the bookstore before they closed, and I bought me a New Testament, a little pocket New Testament. 
I grabbed the fistful of tracks, and that next Monday morning, my life had changed. I showed up at the same place where I was just like everybody else, and this time, I had a New Testament in my pocket. I had a fistful of tracks. And I faced the same issue that the blind guy has faced. I was thinking about this this week. I faced the exact same issues that he faced. And, and we all will. I mean, I, I'm the kind of guy that I'm either all in or I'm all out. I'm, I'm not a halfway guy. And I knew that my new life, no matter what the price was it was going to cost me, I had to show up that Monday morning because a change had taken place in the direction of my life. And the reaction was just like this guy here. Some people were really happy. I had three or four older ladies there that were Christians, and, uh, you know, and uh, they would witness to me, and I kind of, but I, they, those are the first ones that I went to, and I told them what had happened, and they were thrilled. The guys that I worked with, they weren't quite as thrilled. Most of them didn't believe that I'd, it was a real deal. Most, some of them thought it was a fad. Some thought it was just to be, you know, you'll get over it. You know, it's just one of those things that it was an emotional. I faced the exact same thing that this blind guy faced when God gave him his eyesight back. I understood that. I didn't know much about the Bible. Take that back. I didn't know anything about the Bible. But I knew that I had to prove myself. Later on, I found the verse in 1 Thessalonians 5.21 that says, Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. I didn't know that verse then, but I was smart enough or dumb enough to understand that I just couldn't ask them to accept my new life. And in time, they saw the change, and... They believed it because they couldn't deny it. And even the guys who laughed at me, they made fun of me. They, they, had, this, they had this PA system because I drove fork truck and you had all these lines you had to supply to. So when they needed something, they'd call you on the, over the whole plant. And I was now Preacher Al. Over the whole place. Preacher Al, we need you in 515 or whatever the department was, you know. And it, it became, I mean, I kind of liked that myself. I thought that was free press. But it's a thing where I, I, in time, my very critics, now never forget this, the very guys who made fun of me, one time I was back in the storage area getting some parts out, and my worst critic came over to me with tears running down his face and asked me to pray for his baby who was in the hospital. You see, sometimes you have to pay the price to get to the point where people see the difference. You have to prove it. And it, it just took a while. I, I told you the story of John Tony. John Tony was a, a, a black man that uh, was also a fork truck driver. And I, I, I won him to Christ. And I'll never forget the day he got saved. He went home and threw everything away that was not, should not have been in his life. He wound up being a preacher, wound up being a pastor, I had lost touch with him for 25, 30 years, and then when Mel Sabaka died, he showed up at the funeral. He had never lost his faith. And you know, it's one of those things where you have to take the time 
you're going to get the opposition. You're going to get, just like this blind man, you're going to get people who don't believe you're the real deal. They don't believe that it's a real change. You know why? Because they see so much phony Christianity everywhere. But that was the start of my new life, the start of my change. And, and don't misunderstand me. I, I, I was like, I've told you this before, I was just like Abraham. I mean, when he started to go with God, the journey to be God's friend, he made some mistakes. I made some mistakes. I mean, I, 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 I was so exuberant. I, I, I was the poster child. If you would have looked in the Bible at that verse and said a zeal not according to knowledge, my picture was there. I had such a zeal for the things of God. I, I, I just, and I didn't always use the best technique because I was young. I didn't, I, I just, all I knew is something had changed about me and I wanted everybody to know it. I drove a fork truck, ran on propane gas, blows hot air out the back. And uh, I, I have to swing into tight places and you have to put the gas down to lift the fork up and to blow hot air out the back. And it was a natural to me. All the people and the women on the line and the guys on the line, they would all cringe because that blast of hot air would catch them when I'm putting up my fork to get some parts. So I got the idea, not the best idea, put a sign back there. If you think this is hot, wait till you die and go to hell. <laughs> not the best way to handle those things. But I learned. I grew. I mean, it took some time for me to get used to the new light that now was in my life. I remember one of the greatest things in my life that I thank God for every day is, is, is in the 1970s, there was still the remnant of some of these old guys that were really the war horses for God. They were in there up in their 70s and their 80s, but they were still alive. And of course, they're all gone home to be with the Lord now. But it, it was the greatest thing for me to be able to see them talk to them. And some of them took me under their wing. I remember one guy in particular took me out every Wednesday night. He had a burden for Jehovah Witnesses. And every Wednesday night, he'd take me out and we'd call on Jehovah Witnesses. And they had another guy that, went, that, that he did his specialty. And, I, and they all took me under their wing. And I remember one old boy took me aside and he showed me my first understanding and vision of that Old Testament tabernacle that I've taught you many, many times about and how it was relevant now to me and things that I had never knew existed in the Bible, never knew had any relevance to me. I thought they were just Old Testament stories. This is where it began in my world as I walked through from darkness to light that God put people in my life that I needed to help me get where I needed to go. And he said, you know, Bob, that tabernacle back there, and I, I, I want to explain something to you because you just got right with the Lord and you're trying to do what's right and I want to help you as much as I can. Maybe this will show you where you're at. He says, you know, that tabernacle back there, it was just a tent. It wasn't a big temple like Solomon built. It was just a tent. But it was covered with animal skins. And absolutely no light from the outside could get into that tabernacle. 
The only light that was in that tabernacle was found on seven candlesticks called a menorah, the seven-pronged candlestick that was in that tabernacle. Other than that, it was complete darkness. And he said, every day the priest would go into that tent and he'd have to go in there to do the work of the priesthood. And, you know, and, and he said, Bob, when that priest went into that tent to do the work, and he said, now that's a picture of your ministry and where you're going to go and where you're at right now. He said, in that were seven pieces of furniture. I gave them to you a couple of weeks ago. We'll talk about them here in a little bit. He says, that's a picture of what's going on inside you right now. The change where you're really going to be the minister that God wants you to be. And he said, the Bible says over there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, that these are the furnishings that when you got saved, your new life, you start to put these furniture, this furniture in your life that God is going to use to do the ministry. And he says, you know, you're coming out of the false light of the world. And you look up at the sun, it blinds you. And sometimes it, it's, it's, it, it, this world's light is so... Yet in Matthew chapter 6, the Bible says that the light of this world is actually darkness. Verse 23. And he said, so when that priest left the light of this old world and walked into the tabernacle of God, which no light from the world could get in, but only light there was the seven-pronged candlestick. He says, Bob, you know what he had to do? He had to walk in there and stop. He had to wait for a bit. He had to give his eyes time to adjust from the light of the world to the light of God within that tabernacle. And he says, that's where you're at right now. You just came out of the light of the world, the darkness of the world that blinded you, and now you're in the tabernacle. And Bob, you just got to be patient. You got to take some time and just let the light of God through the Holy Spirit of God Get your eyes adjusted to where you've come from to where you're at. You know, that was the best advice anybody's ever given me. I've never forgotten it. To this day, I will use that whenever I get an opportunity to deal with anybody or Bible study or whatever the case may be. God, and, and the greatest thing about that that I want you young Christians to know, just like he did with me when I come out of the darkness into the light, you know what he did? The first thing he did was put men and women in my life who knew what was going on because I didn't to help me along the way. I, I, I don't know where I would be today if it wasn't for guys like that. I don't know where if I ever would have made it. I might have got swaddled right back up in the world simply because I, was, I, I didn't know what was, I was doing. I, I wanted to do it. I wanted to be everything. But I was finding all this opposition. And God will put men and women in our lives early on to be that object lesson for us so we can grow into God's light. 
Here we do it with discipleship one or discipleship two or just dealing with you in the Bible through our Zoom classes or all the different aspects that we do. And, and based on that, and only what happened in my own life, I really began to understand what a real witness was. A real witness will never simply be, as I said last week, just me telling somebody what God will do for them, but rather what he has done for me personally to let that true light of this tabernacle shine through me to that seven-pronged candlestick, the Holy Spirit of God. And then, as I said last week, we take that and we build the dynasties of our families around the Word of God. We build the Word of God into ourselves first, our children, our grandchildren, our great-great-grandchildren, generation after generation. And you want to remember Psalms chapter 127, verse 3 is always misquoted where it talks about our children being our heritage. And that's not what the verse says. Your children are not your heritage. Your children are God's heritage. And we are to build that, to keep that ministry going. Generation after generation, a family that simply does the work of God, passing the light of the Word of God like a torch to each generation. That as Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, that we are run a race. We're in this race that is set before us. And then you remember last week I gave you five areas that out of these 41 verses that really he uses as an object lesson for us. The true witness, what it should be. I showed you how that uh, to take a passage like this last week, that the real way to do it and get a better understanding is to break it down into smaller pieces and then put it all back together. So having said that and showing you that we talked about last week, I want to continue on today and I want to look at the rest of our story here. And in this passage, we again will come across a really good solid Bible principle that I want to focus on when we get there that I want you to understand today. Now I'm going to read here John chapter 9. Let's pick it up in verse 31 through verse 41 and here's what it says. Now we know that God here is not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sin, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they'd cast him out, and when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? Jesus said unto him, Thou hast seen, uh, both seen him, and it is that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which might uh, see might be blind, made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, 
Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, you would have no sin. But now ye say, We see, therefore your sin remaineth. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank you for today. Thank you for the Word of God. Pray you'll put us under the blood today. Give us a clear thought process. And Lord, let us look deep inside ourselves, each one of us today, Lord, and just really find uh, what God has for us here. And Lord, we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, again, we continue to see the relentless attacks on this story by the religious leaders, our famous scribes, Sadducees, and our Pharisees, all to deny who Christ is and the miracle that he has done. All this reminds me, actually, and if the longer you get in the ministry and the longer you work with people, the more you're going to see this. This reminds me of the tactics of people today, Christians, who will attack other Christians who really have a work of God going in their life, and the people attacking them have nothing going on in their life, uh, but they, they, but they, they this constantly will attack them. And it's that thing, some things never change. And they always attack the ones who really do in the work, just like back here in John chapter 9. They, much like the brethren here, have nothing going in their life, nothing they're really doing for the Lord, no ministry, and yet, just as the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they wanted to project themselves as they were right and Christ was wrong. They had no work. They couldn't do any of the miracles that he did. They, they couldn't do, if, if he ever called them to a showdown like Elijah did with the prophets of Baal back in the Old Testament, they'd have been in trouble. They could not do one of the miracles. They had no power. They had nothing going for them. And yet, they want to attack the ones who do. In both cases, this will tell you, uh, you know, uh, what you're up against. Years ago, I had a, and you know, and I always tell you this, when nothing else tells, when, when nothing else, te- <laughs> when nothing else tells, Time will tell. If you just let time play it out, the truth and the light will always come. <clears throat> Years ago, I, had a, <clears throat> I heard a pastor preach a message, and I thought it was a great message. <clears throat> it was at a <clears throat> Bible conference, and, you know, <clears throat> like all pastors, he obviously had gotten clobbered and all kinds of things and situations and everything. <clears throat> and you always, in your church, you always have people get upset, whatever the case may be. <clears throat> and he had just went through, about eight or nine years ago, a very bad church split. And it was over the Bible that he wanted to stay with and they didn't want. And so uh, he preached a message that was for all of us to give us that perspective. And I don't title my sermons. Every once in a while, I might just for, you know, for the fun of it, but a lot of guys title every one of them, but his title was, Where Are They Now? And he preached a sermon on people who have a problem with the Bible, and in time, time will always show you, because a man left to himself in sin doesn't get any better. And he, he was talking about how that 20 years later, you see the results of somebody who's really doing what's right and somebody who's not. And it was an incredible sermon because it, it, 
and, and I never forgot it because it is so true. The people like the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they thought they were right. Jesus and the man born blind were in the right. And they gave him such a tough time, but I, you have to wonder 20 years from that point, where were they? Were they better or were they worse? Are you better for forsaking the word of God and the Lord in your life? Or are you better off? Time will prove that. And in our passage today, <coughs> the, <coughs> the argument continues. <coughs> Who he really was, Jesus. And how can he do these miracles? And it's the same today. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to comprehend the miracles of God when you don't have any in your own life. Now, look at verse 34. Then answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sin. Dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. Now, all this guy did, <clears throat> all he did was to try to tell them again the truth that Jesus opened up his eyes, did a great miracle, and the picture of this is, is a, a picture of modern-day Bible scholarship with Bible teachers, pastors, and scholars. They're so filled like these guys with the pride and the worldly education that they're completely unteachable. He's trying to say, Jesus healed my eyes. It's no big complicated deal. I was blind. He didn't me to do this and that, and now I can see. And their answer is, well, you were born in sin like they weren't. Well, you were born in sin, and now you're going to teach us? Do you know Greek? Do you know Hebrew? Do you have my education? No, you're just a blind man who was a beggar. You're just an old hillbilly from Raytown, Missouri, and you're going to tell without any education, no Greek and Hebrew, you're going to tell me what the Bible says? See, it starts right here. I call it the unattainable of the unteachable. They'll never get to the things in the Word of God because they've got such an attitude toward the book and people who love the book that they'll never attain to those things in the Word of God that God wants them to. It's an amazing how, and I say this all the time, some things never change. And then in verse 39 and 40, Jesus really lays it out to them. Jesus said, For judgment I am come into the world, that they which see, might, uh, uh, which see not might see, and they which see might uh, be made blind. He's simply saying, look, it's your attitude, guys. If you get the right attitude of heart, you can see. If you have the wrong attitude of heart, you think you can see, but you're blind. So what was their response to that? It kicked the guy out of church, synagogue, churching. And they basically says, translating all of this, it simply comes down to, if you believe that the Bible you hold in your hand is the absolute perfect word of God without error, 
And you don't need the help of Greek or Hebrew or higher education or somebody, you know, teaching you the Bible outside the Holy Spirit of God in your life, outside your church. You can never be one of us. Best news I've heard all day. And Jesus comes and finds this guy. And it's a thing where he, they didn't like what happened. They didn't like this guy. They didn't like Christ. But they, they, they have to get rid of him. They have to get him out of their circles. You know why? Because he won't shut up. And he keeps telling everybody, I was blind, but just now I see. Where'd you go to school? I've never been to school. I was just blind. Met a man named Jesus, and now I see. Did you get that out of the Greek? No, I just got it out of a man who spit on the ground. and He spit on the ground? Yeah, he made clay and put it on my eyes. You mean he actually spit on the ground? Yeah. And it, it was on the Sabbath day, right? Yeah, it was. Well, he's a sinner. He, he can't do those miracles. Well, how come I can see? Well, I did, it's just impossible. Well, I'll tell you what's impossible. I've been in your crowd in the synagogue for 40 years, and I'm still blind. And then one day, I met one man. And out of the darkness, into the light. See how simple it is? They don't like simple. You know why they don't like simple? Because you don't need them if it's simple. He didn't need the scribes and the Pharisees. He just needed Jesus. Jesus is all you need. <laughs> it's an incredible thing. And uh, it's a thing, you know, and I'll tell you, just as a side note, you really see this at the around 1900, the turn of the century. You see where this thing is starting to go. By 1900, we're, we're moving out of the Philadelphian church age and beginning to move into the Laodicean church period and the Laodicean church period is nothing more than higher education and scholarship replacing that book you've got in your arms. And again, guys telling you that you can't figure it out for yourself because you're too stupid. That's all it is. And they took the position that if you believe the King James Bible was the word of God and it was absolutely infallible and perfect, you couldn't be a Bible scholar. So all these big time preachers that wanted to be recognized as Bible scholars, they all went that way. Now, I love Clarence Larkin's books. I think Clarence Larkin's uh, on his dispensational truth and rightly dividing the word of truth <clears throat> and even his spirit world, they're great books. You ought to have them. But if you want to see the actual effect of this, he writes around 1900. And his big book that we sell at the bookstore called uh, Dispensational Truth is, is a wealth of material. But I might suggest to you that if you buy his book in there, you'll also get an exacto cutter. And just trim out the first two or three chapters that he deals with when he deals with the creation. He comes up with the goofiest, ridiculous, unbelievable, goofy stuff about Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and the creation about this cloud, vapor, Drop the, I mean, it's, I, it, 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 for years and years and years, I thought to myself, how is this guy so good when he gets past that? And why is he so messed up on Genesis 
in the creation. And then it hit me one day as I grew up and learned a little bit. You know why? This was right in the time that evolution was coming into its own. From the Civil War time on up there, and everybody was accepting it, and everybody was, nobody, 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 nobody could be a scholar and a great baskins of education by getting up and somebody say, Doctor, would you explain to us just a little bit, give us a, just a capsule view of what is really transpiring on that great creation day? Dr. So-and-so, would you come up here? And the whole place just applauds. And he says, yes. Young students, pastors, teachers, fellow, whoever you are, let me tell you, the great story of Genesis chapter 1 is simply more that God and the devil got in a fist fight. The devil wanted to overthrow God. God said, you're not overthrowed. He says, I want to take my throne up to heaven. And, he got dead, and God said, you're not going to do that. The devil says, yes, I am. God says, not, am, not, am, not, am. And you know what happened? The whole universe got thrown into chaos. It put the craters on the planet. It, it put the astral belt out there where planets were busted apart. It was a great galactic war. Now, I know this is only 1900, and we don't have Star Wars yet or Galactic Battlefield, but that's where it all come back to. Why, they throw him out of that school. They laugh him up. That's not scholarly. It's not scholarly to say that God and the devil got into a knockdown drag out and kicked the universe into the world into a, into a disaster. So you've got to have the encounter theory. You got to have the compassing of the cloud theory. Ooh. You got to have something that sounds like it's scholarly. That's what happened. And these guys, God bless them. I thank God for what I learned. But they wanted to be scholars more than they wanted to be Bible teachers. And they caved in to the brethren. The higher educated crowd that said, if you believe the devil and God got in a fist fight and threw the universe in chaos, and you're telling me that the earth was up at the top of the universe and now it's down at the bottom and it's God's footstool and he's isolated the earth and he's got, oh, no, we can't go there. You see, that's, and now today it just it gets a little bit deeper. Oh, if you believe the King James Bible is the word of God and it's perfect without error, you can't be scholarly. And everybody wants to be a scholar. Everybody wants to be noted for their, their education. They want to be recognized as some great mind in the Bible. They want to be an expert in the Bible. They want, let me tell you something. They get it down, put the only note you get. When it comes to the Bibles, there are no scholars and there are no experts. All we all are are students of an infallible book on little different levels. That's all it is. So, you know, we see that. Now, Having said all that, I, I want to look at a great principle found in this passage today, and I want to explain it to you. Now maybe you'll have a little better understanding as we slide into this, but it's verse 31, and it's a verse that I get asked about many, many times, and you will too. In verse 31 it says, Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. 
Now that verse says that God, on its face value, says that God will not hear the prayers of an unsaved man. And in the context here, he's obviously talking about the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now let me explain this. This verse will be based on what we talked about a couple of weeks ago out of John chapter 8, if you remember, in verse 44. And this is where you begin to understand how you put this verse together. Because I want you to know this today. Because if you're going to work with people, you need to understand how this works. And you need to understand how it works for yourself. But he said in John chapter 8, verse 44, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your fathers you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, for there was no truth in him. You'll remember that I talked to you about the two spiritual families in this world. One, your first birth puts you into the devil's family. Your second birth took you out of the devil's family, changed your life, and put you into God's family. You remember when we taught that? So what you got here is that God cannot, will not, hear the prayers, acknowledge the prayers of an unsaved man who is spiritually in the wrong family. Once you get saved out of the darkness into the light, then God hears everything you say to him. But God will not be involved in the prayer or life of an unsaved man based on his spiritual family. I always enjoy Christmas time. You know, I, I like it. I like it just because of us. But I, I, I can't get past all the pageants, all the church services. I mean, I mean the big time guys. I mean like the Church of England, uh, the Catholic Church. You know, they will have, even some of the big neo-evangelicals, you know, they'll have this incredible deal with all this stuff for Christmas and, uh, you know, all the prayers. And I, I remember watching one time uh, uh, over in England, the Church of England was having a Christmas big deal over there. And all the royal family was there. And they would come up and they would offer the prayers, you know, this and that. And all the prayers, you, you read them. They're not out of man's heart. They're, out of, they're on a piece of paper. And you stand up there and you say, Oh God, we thank thee, O Father, for the great unity of the faith and the great universe and all the things that you do. And you go on and on and on, and people are actually sitting there thinking, God's listening to that. The Bible says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And it's one of those things where, you know, uh, it, it, I, 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 I watched the funeral of Bob Dole last week. Bob Dole was a great guy. I, I don't know if he was saved or not, and this is not a criticism whether he was or he wasn't. But if I ever become president and I die, I do not want my funeral in a national cathedral. That place is a morgue. Much bigger than the one we have downstairs, but it's a morgue. These guys, these gals, these lesbian preacher women, guys, girls, whatever, whoever the case may be, getting up there and going on and on and on with all these prayers, they never get out of the room, the prayers, because they're in the wrong family. You know, the unsaved man is in the wrong family. I mean, read verse 44, John 8, uh, verse 31 says that if, if, God hears our prayers, we have to do the will of the Father. 
in John 9. John 8, 44 says an unsaved man will do the lust of his father. There's a difference. It's just that simple. Now, I want you to learn something today, and I, I want to show you how this works. I think prayer is the most single important thing in your life after the day you get saved. I think it's more important than the Word of God, though I understand they both go together. But I think it's more important than the Word of God because if you don't get your prayer life set, you can forget the Word of God because that's where it all has to start. I remember back in the 1990s when they had the Gulf War, General Schwarzenkopf, he's dead now, but he was the commanding general over there, and he knew the way to win a battle was simple. It didn't matter how many men they had. It didn't matter how they deployed. They, they spent months and months and months, the Iraqis over there, getting them defenses because they knew we were coming. And none of it mattered because in the first 15 minutes of the battle, it was over. Because the United States Air Force, they docked out every communication system that the Iraqis had, and they absolutely had no communication with anybody, and they didn't know what to do. They couldn't get any orders, couldn't get any information, and it was a rout. And the devil knows that's true. So the first thing he'll knock out of your life and my life is to disrupt our communication. When he takes that out of our lives, battle's over. You say, I still come to church, battle's over! You say, well, I, I, battle's over. When you lose your communication to him, that prayer life, you're done. And that's always the first thing that'll go. You know why that's the first thing that'll go? Because that's when nobody can see. That will always hit you underneath the ground. He'll get you, on, he'll get you where nobody sees it. And then by the time it's too late, then everybody sees it. That's how it works. It just knocks out your communication channels. Just that simple. And you'll remember, uh, this, is, this is, I want to define this for you. Because this verse really will be the definitive of it. You'll remember a couple of weeks ago, and I mentioned this a few moments ago, we were dealing with 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where it talked about the furnishings. And I showed you how that that New Testament passage of the furnishings, and that's the right word. It's chains in all the new Bibles. That's the right word because your body is the tabernacle, Old Testament, and the seven pieces of furniture in the tabernacle match up to the furnishings we need to have in our life. We went through that already. won't do it again. But I showed you that there were three levels to that tabernacle. And your body has three parts, body, soul, and spirit. And these three parts of the tabernacle will match up to your body, soul, and spirit. And if you want to understand how this thing works, well, section one, the outer section, was the brazen altar and the laver of water. That was on the outside. And I told you that the brazen altar is where they did the sacrifice, and the uh, laver of water is where that priest had to, every time he came out, before he went back in, he had to wash his feet on that laver of water. And the reason for that is because the tabernacle was a tent and it had boards on it and animal skins on it, but it had no floor. He walked in in the dirt. And every time he came out from doing the Word of God to work on the sacrifice before he went back in, he had to wash his feet to get them clean. That's a picture of you and me getting clean before we go to do the Word of God because you're going to get dirty on your feet and your walk walking up and down the dirt of this planet. What a picture that is. 
So those are the outward things. Then when you went into that tent, and I told you this before, we won't linger on these. You had the shoe bread, picture of the Word of God. You had a seven-pronged candlestick. You had the altar of incense. And then you had the golden censer, which he carried, like you see the Catholic priest carrying it when they're doing a wedding or a funeral. They're carrying that little chalice around and the smoke you know, comes up and everybody gets high on it and you go home and have a good time after the funeral. But that's how it works. And then, of course, you had the third section was the Holy of Holies, where you go behind the veil. That's a picture of your true worship. That's a picture of your true relationship with God, unfortunately, the most that God's people never get to. And I told you that two of these pieces of furniture represent our prayer life. One of them is the altar of incense. That's a picture of our prayer worship. The other one is the, the uh, golden censer that he carried. That's a picture of our prayer life, as the book of Ephesians says, that you carry with you, that you pray without ceasing. Now, in the Bible, God is relevant to smells. He'll talk about it in the Song of Sodom, and when he looks at the church, he, you smell like a garden, rose garden. And uh, he talks about the fact that, the in, that when, when they offered the sacrifice, it was the smell of that innocent flesh burning that appeased God in his nostrils, that appeased him of sin. I don't get it. I'm just telling you. And yet at the same time, he talks about the fact that in the tabernacle, they burned incense. And that incense was a picture of prayer. And it's a picture that when we pray biblically, it sends up a sweet savor to the nostrils of God that he is connected to our prayer life. And I told you that all the fire that lights the censer and lights the uh, altar of incense, it all had to come off the brazen altar. Now that brazen altar, as you should know by now, is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. On that brazen altar is where the sacrifice was made. That's where Christ made our sacrifice. And the doctrinal teaching is simply this. Save your loss. And I want you to understand this. Because if you're ever going to do anything for God, it's going to come down to you understanding what I'm going to give you right now. That the scribes and the Pharisees couldn't get. The blind man could get it. But you're going to face opposition in getting it. If my prayer, if your prayer, the incense of going up to God, if that prayer of incense is not lit by the fire of Christ's death on the cross for you and for me, you're wasting your time. It's not the altar of incense, it's the altar of nonsense. Because that brazen altar is where it started. Any prayer that I offer, that you offer, that doesn't originate of what he did for me and my understanding of it, you see, that takes all the personal out of it. Takes all of the, well, all, I want this or I want that because it all has to go back to his death on the cross. Now, you go back in the Old Testament, you'll find the story back there in Leviticus chapter 10. 
And it's a story of two guys by the name of Nahab and Abihu. They were Aaron's sons. And they were corrupt priests. And they were in charge of keeping the incense burning, keeping the censer burning. And the Bible says that in chapter 10, verses 1 2, God came down and killed them both. And I've had people ask me, what is, the, what is the big deal? The big deal was when they lit the incense, God said they did it with strange fire. They didn't get the fire to light the prayer the incense off the brazen altar. They got it someplace else. And God would not accept it. And God killed them because of the strange fire. God would not recognize because it did not start where the sacrifice started. You're told in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 12, that that fire to light that incense and to light those candlesticks has to come off the brazen altar. And without a biblical prayer life, there can be no relationship with God because you are in the wrong family. Or even if you are saved because you're not going back to the brazen altar, now, look at verse 31 of chapter 9. Notes the two key elements here. For our prayers being heard. He says, if any man be a one worshiper of God. And then the second thing he says is, doeth his will. Him he heareth. You see... The worshiper of God is John chapter 4. We worship him in spirit and truth. All of this has to come back to Christ's death on the cross. And we live in a Christianity where Christ's death on the cross doesn't mean anything to us anymore. That's why when we get saved or claim to be saved, there's no change in our direction of life. There's no real repentance. We continue to do the same thing. You know why? Because at the end of the day, I'll just say it, that death on the cross where he agonized for you and for me and he paid the sin debt for you to go to heaven, it just doesn't mean anything to us anymore. Too many other things exciting out there. Too many other things to get involved in. So we stand around and throw up our prayers. God, I need this. God, I need that. God, do this. God, do that. We order God around like we're ordering something off of Amazon. We just put in the right keys, hit our credit card. God, why haven't you answered it yet? I'll tell you why. Because real biblical prayer and a real biblical prayer life and a real biblical relationship with God starts at the cross. You forget what he did for you, you can forget it as your prayer life is concerned. These two, worship and doing His will. Worship is the spiritual side of it. Doing His will is being more like Christ every day of your life based on your worship. And they're key. Now, when you don't have these two, whether you're saved or you're lost, your prayers will never get through. Because you're offering strange fire that God doesn't recognize because it's not originating off the brazen altar. You remember several weeks ago or a couple of months ago, I taught you the seven things that you lose when you get rid of your Bible? Well, two of them was uh, John chapter 4, verse 24, no worship 
And the second one was John 15, 7, no prayer life. Because it's all based on what God did for you on the cross. And if you don't take it back and it doesn't start there, you don't have anything. Now, having said that, somebody will say, I'm just jumping ahead here because I know how you ask questions and that's good. And I've been asked this before. Somebody will say, well, when I was unsaved, I prayed to God and he answered that prayer. How do you explain that? That's easy. That's not a hard one. Ask me where God came from. That's really a tough one. This is an easy one. Two responses to that or two reasons for that. First of all, because somebody else was probably praying for you. And God couldn't answer your prayer because you're in the wrong family, but he honored their prayer because they loved you and cared for you. Look at Genesis chapter 18 and 19. This is called intercessory prayer in Abraham's life for Lot. I'll never forget old Bill Denton. Bill Denton was a uh, a pastor up in Akron, Ohio. Another old boy out of the old Philadelphia days, I'll tell you. And he died. And and I heard him tell this story. He was preaching. And it was, I never forgot this. He was preaching on this very verse, and he was preaching on prayer, and he was in World War I. Of course, you now know that all the World War I vets are all dead now. We're losing World War II vets like 12, 1300, 1400 a day. We won't be long, they're all gone. And then Korea guys will be next, and then yours truly, Vietnam, will be next. But it's just the way time goes. But Bill Denton told the story that he was in one of those great battles over there, and I Chateau Thierry or the Marne, or I forget where he was. But anyway, uh, a German uh, artillery barge came in, and they were making an assault, and it landed over here, killed everybody with him. It didn't kill him, but it rendered him to the place where he, he could not move. He was aware of everything going around him, but he was paralyzed. He couldn't speak. He couldn't move. He couldn't talk. He couldn't blink. He couldn't do anything. He laid that way for over a day in the mud and the filth of all the dead bodies around him. Bill Denton said that he was unsaved at that point in time. Before he went to France, he said his mama was praying for him to be saved. His mom was a love the Lord, and she said, I was a rascal and didn't want to get saved, and my mom would pray for me. Every night I'd come home drunk, and I'd hear my mom in the bedroom on her knees praying for my salvation. He said, that just drove me crazy. And he says, but here I am. I'm laying on that battlefield. I can't move. And he says, the day after the battle, the medics start coming in, and they start picking up all the dead bodies. And they laid all the dead bodies in a pile, and one of them, two of them came over and picked me up and laid me on a pile of dead bodies they were going to bury. He says, I couldn't call out. I couldn't scream. I couldn't move. And he says, I laid there for a whole day and a whole night waiting for them to come and put me in the ground and put dirt over me, and I couldn't do a thing about it. And he says, I want you to know, I prayed. I prayed. And he said, finally, on the next day, they came to take the bodies, and the two guys picked him up and began to carry him and put him on a stretcher and carry his supposedly dead body and put him in a hole to bury him. And one of the men looked down, and he couldn't move, he couldn't talk, but a tear was running out of his eye. 
And that medic stopped down and looked and listened to him and found out he was alive and got him to a hospital and he was alive today and he got saved after that became one of the great men of God and preached the word of God for the rest of his life. But when he told that story, he said, you know, I thought it was my prayers. But he said, God doesn't answer the prayer of an unsaved man. When I got home and I told my mom the story, at the exact moment I was laying on that pile of dead bodies, my mama was on her knees praying for me. That's how he does it. That's how he does it. Because we're in the wrong family. Now, I'll tell you the second thing. When a man starts, or a woman, to turn toward God in their heart, and yet they're unsaved, God will begin that work in your life. He'll put people in it. He'll put circumstances in it. He come to the place where, as the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that God is not willing that any should perish. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 9, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, that uh, he's the true light of thought of every man that coming in the world. When a man begin, or a woman begins to move in that direction, even though they're unsaved, God will put people in their life to bring them along. And that is, we know, Romans chapter 10, verse 13, and Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, and it will come a point based on that and the prayers of others where that man will utter the first prayer out of his mouth that God hears and accepts, O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's how the verse will lay itself out. You see, God's people should be a family. And as a family, we want people to be saved. You, you see it here in an incredible way. People get saved here all the time. Why? Because people here care for other people. You go to school, you go to work, wherever you go, God will put somebody on your heart, they're lost, and you start to, you start to pray for them. You put them on your own prayer list. And you look for opportunities for God to use you. You're, you're smart. You're, you, you see, you look for the open doors. And God uses you, and pretty soon, because of your prayers, because of your caring, God brings them to the place where he hears their first prayer because we cared for others. You know, but the devil's family wants to keep us blind, wants to keep you blind. And he never wants us to be allowed to see what's really truth. And in the New Testament, you see it so clearly with the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, and all the New Testament uh, books of the Bible. The devil will do everything in his power to keep you from changing your life. Because it's a changed life that's all that's going to make the difference. You know, I'll give you an example in the Bible you have in your hand today. In the New Testament, you'll find five places that lays out a man getting saved and talks about the key elements of that man getting saved. But in a religious world, you'll find that today, John chapter 8, verse 44, that they'll try to do everything they can to keep you from getting the truth. So you're going to find in the first case in John chapter 9, verse 35, where we're at, the second case in Luke chapter 23, verse 42. The third case in Acts chapter 9, verse 5 and 6. The fourth case in Acts chapter 8, verse 37. And the fifth case in Acts chapter 16, verse 31. These are places where you actually see somebody 
getting saved. And just like the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day that didn't want anybody to see the truth, every new Bible on the market will change these verses so you can't get the key word out of it. In fact, in Acts chapter 8, verse 37, they just take the whole verse out. Why? Because the devil wants to keep you in the dark. The devil wants to keep you from getting that light. God will do everything. He died on the cross for us. He died on the cross and paid the price for every man and woman on this planet. Once we get saved, we enter into a, a cohesiveness of, of trying to bring people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it comes down to the fact that it all simply comes down to not what we say, but do people really see the change? It took me a while at the Hoover Company. Everybody knew who I really was. And it was hard for them to believe on that Monday morning that I was somebody different. But I never got discouraged. I stayed with it because even though they didn't know it was real, I knew it was real. And God will take those things and he'll use us if we're just patient. Stand still. Let the light of God's word Change your eyesight from the brightness of this world to just seeing things through the seven-pronged candlestick, the light of the Holy Spirit of God. And I'm telling you, learning the great lessons of how God and the devil will work. This is why you need to understand that the key to your Christian life is your prayer life. We have a tremendous people here that pray. But I'm telling you right now, it has to go back and originate on the day that God saved you. You have to have the fire off the brazen altar. It can't be from someplace else. It can't be of a selfish motive. It can't be because of some personal thing you want. It has to go back that it simply goes back to what he did for you. And when you start your prayer life there, then you're in a better place to accept whatever answer God gives you. Because you know the only thing sure in your heart you know is your prayer started at Calvary. And that's where it all started. You know, the devil, I know he, I know he wants to keep people from getting saved. I understand that. I know everything in the world, everything that he's created goes against it, everything that God did. I get all of that. But I'm going to tell you the real thing that upsets him. The real thing that upsets him is not so much of the salvation, but the real thing that upsets him is the change that happens in our life at salvation. Because you can claim to be saved and have no change and never affect anybody. But you can't truly be saved and be changed and not help affect somebody. It's a thing where I told you over there in... Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the foundation that we lay the day we get saved. No other man can lay any other foundation than Christ Jesus. The day you got saved, you laid a foundation in your life. And then if you notice that passage, you're to build three things on that foundation that are good. The first thing that you build is, 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 uh, is uh, gold, silver, precious stones. And when you look at those three things, those three things will change your life. The problem with most of God's people, they may lay a foundation, but they never build gold, silver, precious stones on it. You see, the gold will represent the deity of Christ, and the first thing after you get saved you need to put on that foundation is you need to learn everything about God you can. 
The second thing they built on that foundation is silver. Because after you learn everything that God did for you, the next thing uh, God is for you, then the next thing you want to learn is the silver, the price of redemption. And you want to learn everything that the price that was paid for you. Because you're moving in that direction. That's the direction of a changed life. You find out who he is, find out what he did for you, and then the third thing you build is precious stones. And in the Bible, precious stones are people. And I just make it really simple. You can't find out who he is. You can't find out what he did for you and not want to tell somebody about it. The precious stones. It's a life changer. And so the devil, he doesn't want you to get saved because he doesn't want that changed life to affect other people. But if you do get saved, then he has plan B. And that is the fact, okay, there's nothing he can do about that now. You were saved and you're going to heaven. He has lost you. So now he shifts into plan B. And that plan B will simply be, let you go to heaven, let you be a Christian, but never let your life impact anybody else's. Don't change. And that's why the churches today are geared to the world and everything that goes on with it so you can go to church, claim to be a Christian, but you never have to change. You're not separated from the world. You become one with it. And the devil goes out the door laughing. Because the only thing that will be our witness will be the change of the day we got saved. And everything we do has to go back to that brazen altar. This is why I want you to understand this today. We have a great host of young men and young ladies here who are getting into the Word of God and you're growing and you're doing well and God's going to use you greatly. I'm amazed at what he's doing here with the people that you guys are bringing in and getting saved and all the things that are happening. It's overwhelming. But I'm telling you right now, if it doesn't go back to Calvary, for the rest of your life, you never forget that day. And that day changed you forever. There's nothing in this world, no six-pack of beer, no carton of cigarettes, no, no marijuana, no, no, no nothing that can compete with that day when I was blind and I... Uh, you know, when I, another doofy thing that I did, you know, at the Hoover Company, you couldn't get in until 7 o'clock. And I'm, you know, everybody by quarter to seven, man, there's a hundred people out there waiting to get in. Now, personally, I can see waiting to get out of work, but I never saw the value of waiting to go to work. But I looked over there and I thought to myself, wow, there's 50, 60 people. And uh, so I got the idea, you know, I just go in there and they weren't going anywhere. And so I'd walk into the middle of that crowd and I'd say, hey, folks, you all know me. I'm Bob. I'm a fork truck driver down there in, in apartment 63. And I just want you to know, you know, I got saved a while back and God made a deal in my life and you know what, he changed everything about me and you know, I love you guys, we're all a big family here and I just want you to know if you ever want to know how to go to heaven or want to know anything or if you have any problems that I can pray for you, if it's family, just come and see me, no big deal, I just want you to know you're all here, I love you all, praying for you all and I'm here for you. You know what, I got, I don't know how many times I got somebody afterward, maybe not right then, but later call me down and say, hey, would you pray for this? Would you pray for that? I want you to know I have this need. There has to be a change that people see. You can't just keep being the same old me. Because when I got saved, I don't know where the same old me went, but he's gone. And he ain't never coming back. 
That's what needs to happen. Well, we'll hold up there. That was a thing I want you to get today. Next week, we're gonna, next week is going to be, I know you ain't going to believe this. It just happened to fall on it, John chapter 10. Next week is the real Christmas message.